0: One of the most important things that I would do if I was still an architect is go to your project sites as much as possible. I know that like we all kind of like get in our, our silo of what we should be working on and it's inconvenient to drive or to take the train and go there, but go to your construction site and don't just go there and walk around by yourself and look at it. Talk to the construction manager and form a relationship with them. You will both learn from each other and benefit greatly from that. I cannot express that enough, but coming from an architecture background and being on a construction site daily was just completely game changing. But I think it works both ways because the construction manager also needs to learn from the architect. I really think it's just working together. And the unfortunate thing is that, you know, most architects and say bigger companies, you're working on like five different projects at a time. You're not going to have the luxury of being aware of all these things that I'm mentioning and bringing it to the table on every project.
1: Welcome to Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, my colleague at Monograph, Chris Morgan, and myself are very pleased to welcome Alloy Development Director of Construction, Alexander Militano, to talk about how to build as an architect-led developer in of all places, New York City. Ali directs the construction of projects at Alloy Development, where she oversees on, on-site execution and construction administration. She has a master's in real estate from NYU and also a bachelor's of architecture from Virginia Tech. Ali has also worked for eight years in construction management at Structure Tone in New York before her current role. So really intense. So that's really exciting to basically be able to see mostly the the entire life cycle of a project up to even beyond delivery. So, if you're not familiar with Alloy Development, this firm is a hybrid architect developer model that's based in predominantly Brooklyn, where they work on making the city more beautiful, sustainable, and equitable. They have a lot of really beautiful projects there. They question existing practices and, pros- and propose new ways to benefit the social and built environment. So, as a developer, they really differentiate themselves by focusing on very local, like on communities themselves. They've developed over a billion, 1.6 billion in work, uh, which is uh, pretty impressive. Products along the Highline and also several in in Dumbo. They use great architecture and thoughtful development to possibly impact our built environment. Special thanks to uh, Dan uh, Nisley, uh, one of our team members here at Monograph, who connected us with Ali. Ali, thank you so much for joining us. That was a kind of a mouthful of an intro, but I think think we can kind of get into the nitty-gritty. It would be great to understand a little bit more about, you know, what sets Alloy apart. And kind of we can then dive a bit more about you and and how you fit into Alloy.
0: So I think what sets Alloy apart is like you said, we are a development firm who does all the architecture for our own developments. It's not an architecture firm that we provide services to other developers. It's just all in-house, vertically integrated. So what sets us apart from other real estate developers is that unfortunately, most developers are focused on the bottom line. And then the unfortunate thing for architects is that they care deeply about the design, but you rarely have the opportunity to exercise that because the developers are the ones in control. They're ultimately the ones choreographing the built environment, right? So under one roof, you get a developer who is more focused and more thoughtful on the design, how it's impacting everything around them. You know, I always joke that the world would be such a better place with better design. And I think that like that is something that we're striving to do. And I think that in what we've built so far and what we have planned, it's evident, you know, having the opportunity to be the mastermind and get to do all the things that you want to do as a designer is what sets us apart.
2: Would you say that Alloy is a little bit more of an architecture firm than they are a developer? Or would you say it's like right in the middle 50-50?
0: I guess I would say it's right in the middle. The biggest differentiation, like I've just said, that from a typical architecture firm is that we're not providing services to other people. It is more focused on development in that aspect, but there's nothing that our architects are, you know, we're not outsourcing anything. Like everything is in-house. We have multiple people who are licensed. So it's really like a, an odd, happy medium. And it's kind of funny now after being here, it doesn't feel abnormal. It's the norm. It's what we do. And it just works. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think it's the 50-50 what makes it work.
2: Would there be like an example, maybe maybe something really current with something you're working on where you can imagine how a typical developer might handle a decision Versus how a lawyer is handling a decision. So
0: I have one really big example. We have a project right now that is about to break ground. It's actually funny enough. The site is literally right behind me. I didn't move here just because of that. But so we started it a few years ago and, you know, it just had to go through a lot of approvals and everything. And we were supposed to break ground last spring. And then obviously we all know the pandemic hit. And so things were delayed a bit. Everything was shut down in the city, no construction at all. We were delayed and then we were going to break ground in the fall. So the project is going to be 42 stories. It's a a big tower, rental apartments, but it was originally designed to be seven floors of commercial space and then rental apartments on top of that. Obviously now with the pandemic and the way that things are looking in the next, at least the next few years, is that office space is reducing. If they're going to keep their office spaces, they're definitely going to be reducing their footprint or just moving out completely and doing full remote work. We had, you know, seven huge floors of office space. And at the point where we were literally ready, we had awarded trades. We were ready to break ground like within a week. And we stopped and thought about it. And we're like, we need to make a decision right now. And I think, you know, other developers at that stage would have kept going because they're, you know, we're already committed at this point. We just have to keep driving it home and like, you know, I guess hope for the best in a few years when the project is done and then you have to deal with absorption. But we wanted to be a little bit more proactive. And rather than shying away from readdressing it, we redesigned completely and made the whole building residential. The ground level is still retail. You know, you want some activity on the ground level of course in New York City where people are walking around but the rest of it's all rental apartments and we took the commercial aspect out completely and had to redesign we actually added some floors in then because you didn't need us the same floor heights. so rather than shying away from it we completely redesigned and we were able to do it quickly because we're in-house and our architects are only focused on one thing they're not distracted with other projects so we actually I think it was between late it was actually October And we had it redesigned and presented to our investors by December, so it was like a big, uh, you know, crackdown for all of us to just totally think about it in a different way. And you know, we were sad to lose some aspects of it, but I think we've also, I think we feel like really excited about it and think that it was actually an opportunity that we didn't see coming. And we just like, you know, took it for what it was and made the most of it. I think that that is definitely something different that you wouldn't see developer would typically do to just completely redesign a building.
2: I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got to Alloy. You mentioned in a previous conversation with me that you were recruited. So if you could talk a little bit about how that process worked.
0: So originally I applied to a position on LinkedIn, you know, a few months before then I was introduced to Alloy and the recruiter for that reached out to me. She's like, look, I I don't think that you're right for this position, but like, I was just, I'm going to, Admittedly, I just wanted to get out of where I was. So I was just like throwing things out there. So she reached out to me. She's like, I don't think you're right for this position, but like, can, let's have a conversation. Like, so I know if I have anything for you, like what you're looking for. We got on the phone. At first, I was a little bit wary because I was like, really? Like, everyone hates that process anyway, right? So, and I was like, now I have to get on the phone with this recruiter I've never even met. Like, oh, okay. And we actually ended up having like an hour long conversation. Totally, we clicked. So, By the end of the conversation, she's like, look, I'm going to find something for you. And then like, we'll know it's right. And a few weeks later, she's like, I think I got it. And just, you know, but it was just having that conversation and being candid with someone about like, the thing is with a recruiter, you don't have to sell yourself the way that you feel that you do in an interview. You have to be honest. (laughs) And you just have to tell them exactly like what it is you're looking for or like what you're willing to compromise or not compromise. And I think just that being honest and being candid about everything, she completely understood what I wanted and where I wanted to go. And then when Alloy came up, she was like, it's perfect. And I said, I was like, you're right. (laughs) And then when I met them, I was like, done, done deal. So yeah, I think building those relationships is important. And, And she's actually, it's funny. She's someone that I have still kept in touch with and I will be making sure to send her this video too. So,
1: I'm curious about like how your background in architecture has played out in this role. Like, do you still lean on that in your current day to day? I know you, a lot of a lot of what you do is lean on the construction side, but I'm very curious. Like, how does that play out? Is there a feedback loop that you can provide as, as well into the design process? Like, how engaged are you in that in that part of the conversation?
0: Yeah. So I feel like that was, I guess, kind of two questions or can go in two ways. I would say in general, even even if I'm not the one doing sketches or drawings, it's something that's just still a part of you and the way that you look at things. So I would say in general, throughout construction, I was always the one that was pulled into, I guess, more detailed projects or the more intricate high-end projects because I cared, you know, I didn't want to lose the design intent. So I would make sure I found ways just by, you know, like the subcontractors will be saying like, this isn't, we can't do this, this is impossible. But I'm like, well, there has to be some kind of way. Maybe it's not exactly the way that it was drawn, but there has to be another way to achieve that. So you just ask a lot of questions and you find a way to maintain that design intent with then also taking into account constructability. And I would say then, as far as where I am now, working more closely with architects again and right in-house who either sit right next to me or on a Zoom call, I will mention things to them as they're designing things. I'm like, did you consider this? Or, you know, when we go to buy this out. Going to be a little bit difficult. That takes three trades that you're thinking it's just one. So I speak up when I think it's appropriate or necessary. And then also having that design background and understanding when we do go to buy it out and are scoping out trades, I make sure that they understand the details. So they know what they're buying and they know what they're supposed to be building. And if they have, you know, if they see an issue with it, I want to make sure that we address it up front, even like before we get to the point that we're in the field doing it. I'd rather address it now and we can prepare for it and make any adjustments that we need to make. The earlier, the better.
2: Ali, you mentioned in the past in a conversation with me about one way to sort of talk about the difference, like the new skill set of a construction management skill set and cost estimating skill set is when you're looking at a detail, it's evaluating the sequence of and how many different trades, right? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I guess that touches on what I was just saying too, like When you look at a detail, I'm going to use just a silly example of um, we have a facade detail that then there's like an inboard insulation and back pan and then drywall goes behind it. And it's like, well, who owns that? You know, like the, the facade installer doesn't want to do the insulation, but you have the extrusion that goes out to it. And then we need the back pan. You know, it all needs to meet the performance tests. And so why would that be by the drywall guy? And then it goes both ways. So things like that, that you just don't think about, or it's kind of then marking up a detail. Well, he owns this, this and that, and she owns this and that part of it. And it's crazy how, when you break it down to those small, small things, it is two different hands that have to touch it. Like what I was saying, sometimes there's a better way to do it. How can we simplify this? So it's only one group of people rather than two that have to coordinate because coordination always brings up other challenges. It could just be different things like that that you don't think about come into play. And also with estimating the cost for it, because different trades have different rates and, you know, even their supplying of things is factored differently for them. So diving into that more and breaking into that with each trade is invaluable.
2: Is there an analogy to that with real estate? What changes about how you think about situations in architecture Once you have this real estate skill set, is there like an immediate analogy that has to do with like many hands complicates the situation? Or is there something else that you'd say is like really top of mind?
0: I would say it's a little bit different. The first thing that comes to my mind with the way that I guess real estate has changed my focus on design or what's important and worth the value. And that can go either way. You know, as a designer, you may think that some of these things like you can't live without But then as a real estate developer, the one that ultimately has to also think about the money, like what's a nice to have and what's a has to have. And you just think about it so differently. And then when you do see the cost of things, it changes your mindset of it and what you want to include in your design. Or you see the value that it has then on the absorption. If your units are selling and you're hearing over and over again that it's because of this feature, then you see even that, okay, so that was a lot of money, but it's worth it because we sold all of our units. So you do think about certain, it just changes the way you think about things, either things that you don't want to spend your money on or things that you do want to spend your money on. If that makes sense, if that answers your question.
2: For kind of like the layperson, a lesson you hear about real estate is uh, location is everything. Is that true from your perspective? How much goes into the site selection? And then what other gains, what are like the big gains that you also see that design brings to a project beyond location?
0: Okay, so A, yes, location is huge. But I would say that the key is, too, is realizing the potential in a location that other people might overlook. And I do think that's where having that innate creativity of designers comes into play. You look anywhere, anywhere. I, I do every time I like travel to a new city, I'm always finding, like, oh, that could be this. Like, that could be so great as that. So then, obviously, as a developer, you have the potential to do that. I would say they're a little bit more visionary. And bringing that to the table of real estate is a huge um, tool or a hidden, a secret weapon, I guess we can say. So I would say location is hugely important, but if you see the hidden value in a location, that's even better. Like you can't just like be like, well, that's the most obvious spot on the street. Like you can't always have that. It's going to cost you. So like, how can you be more creative about it and make that location something more than what it seems on paper to people? And then I would also say another big thing that, that we do do at Alloy and can make a big difference is also just site activation before you start a project is bringing some more life there in small ways, such as like what we're going to be doing on upcoming projects is like making a colorful construction fence around it rather than the typical ugly green construction fence you see and making a little mini plaza with like a painted ground and also get some like community groups to come do performances. So it just also, the bringing more attention to it is going to help with
1: the ROI. Uh, there's probably certain elements that you might have spent more money into a project. You know, I think about sometimes the most expensive areas of a in housing. It's like the kitchen or something like that, or the bathrooms or whatnot. Like, is there any research that goes into like what kind of things are are people looking for that will make that kind of impact? And is that like upstream of what design does? So, in other words, is it like I mean, maybe this is also an organizational question, which is like, how does a product evolve through the different teams such that by the time it gets to the architect, maybe there's already a lot of context or the, let's say the design team, there's already a lot of context as to like, okay, these are the things, this is like what people are looking for in this project. You know, how does that play out?
0: Yeah. So I would say it starts with A, as a developer, you have to define your target market. That comes from doing a lot of market research on the area and what's selling. So we do a lot of that. We have some in-house marketing and sales people. We also, we do reach out to other services to give us some more insight on that front so that we we do know what's more high in demand and what is selling. So we do definitely get other perspectives on that. And then we've had meetings where we go over different things like that, that what's selling, what's not selling. I would say, and then our designers might have to make some adjustments based off that. But I would say something... That's recently come up that I've seen that come into play is just designing amenities and how much importance that has and what types of amenities to include. So we definitely do factor that into everything. Like, I mean, there's certain amenity spaces that we wouldn't have added because we we didn't know that it was something that people wanted as much. But doing that research and digging into that, we're designing for it now. That's also a good example of something that doesn't, you can't put a dollar value on exactly but if the units are sold and and there's another building next to you that's not then you know that was a factor and you just so you have to kind of just keep that trust in your future designs too
2: without a client as a stakeholder and instead an investor what what is the difference are there other stakeholders that you see beyond the client
0: there's a ton of stakeholders <laughs> because the thing is you know as a developer you don't just come into a city a community a, a neighborhood and just say, here's what we're building, deal with it. Like, well, I mean, some developers may do that, but we're not going to do that. So the whole community is a stakeholder in a way. You know, um, I think leading up to projects, there's a lot of community outreach to know what do they want in the area what are they okay with? We actually did also do some redesign on this upcoming project based on community input. So the area that we're in, which is right around me, there's a mix of some very tall buildings and then brownstones one block away. And so they were originally taken aback by the height of the tower that we designed and proposed. So we scaled it back because they are a stakeholder. They're, they're the people living here, you know, and we don't want to drive them out. We want them to be a part of it. And we want them to be happy with it. So even though they're not a client that has to dictate everything, you know, to us in that sense, they're a stakeholder and it's important. And then our investors are obviously stakeholders, but they also, they don't design the building. They also lean on us for that expertise, obviously. And there are partners too. So they're not, it's not the client in the way that you have to answer to them in the way that's the typical way that you perceive that. There are partners and they want to help us succeed. So they're on board as long as, you know, if we have to justify something, we justify a, a decision that we're making. There's definitely a lot of stakeholders in the project. It's just in a different aspect. And you just have to be aware of all of that. As much as you can.
2: Yeah, before the call, you also mentioned how buyers of what you're building are also an ongoing stakeholder, not just like a one and done stakeholder.
0: Yeah, so I would say that we have had buyers then, even if they're, you know, it's like we were saying, it's rare to have a repeat buyer for a condo because I don't know how many people are buying a bunch of condos in New York City, but they have kind of recruited friends to come into our buildings as well because they were pleased with the product that they purchased. So even though it's not the same sense of repeat clients, they're bringing in more people to share that opportunity. And also, I mean, other than just buyers, there are other, quote, repeat clients you can say just because we're dealing with community board members and lobbyists and investors can be on multiple projects too. So it's just a different way of thinking
1: about it. There's probably a lot of people in the audience that are just even curious about what it means. Like if they work at a traditional architecture firm, they're probably just even super curious. Like how does one even become a developer? Like what, you know, cause I think there's always that question, right. About the, the narrative of agency within architecture firms that, Oh, you're always sort of beholden to the client and like, you know, you mm-hmm. can't really exercise, but, the reality is like, there are ways in which a firm can become a developer. And really a lot of that has to do with how you manage. I guess there's different ways, right? I mean, there's actually even like, as an architect, you can also like do all the due diligence, all the development of the project, speculatively in a way, right? And then find investors for it. Can you maybe speak a little bit about and maybe demystify a little bit of the process of like, you know, uh, not necessarily what the formula is for, uh, for Alloy, but just what is actually the work involved to take a project from like an idea to actual execution?
0: So one of the more important things that before jumping into developing your own projects, just I would either on, on my own or actually take a class just to do some pro formas, I think, you know, because here's the thing. Like, I want to say, like, you could just go buy a property and just develop it, but most likely are going to need someone to also give you some money for it. So how are you going to sell them that idea? Well, architects do have that one up on other developers where they can, you know, drop a nice, beautiful design and sell them on the design, but you also have to sell them on the fact that they're going to get their money back and then some. So if you can get the ability to do a quick conceptual feasibility designs and studies and also show at least back of the envelope pro forma, like that is first and foremost. And you should do that on your own practicing, like find a site around you that interests you and do some of the due diligence, look into um, the zoning laws, like for your locality, what permits are required and see what you could actually build there and just like, do some quick studies for yourself. It's honestly really fun. So <laughs> I would say start there. And then if you honestly just start walking around and seeing the different areas around you and sites, like you're going to end up stumbling upon, like I said, it's finding those hidden gem of location, location, location. And you might find that obviously if you're going to actually do it, start really small. There's a ton that you can't teach in a book is the unfortunate thing. I wish that you could, I mean, I, I went to university for, real estate development. Like I got my graduate degree in that, but like, again, it's learning a lot of the proformas and the financials. It's you're never going to learn the boots on the ground thing. until you actually are doing it, but I would say hundred percent practice and you'll end up getting sucked into it and keep doing it. And then one time you're going to do it and be like, Holy crap, this is actually, this is something, this is an opportunity. And then you have to sell it.
1: You bring up a lot of great points about like that. There's already the, just the ability to communicate the project visually I mean that's such a big part of just even gathering investors on board, right? Because oftentimes, yes, you can just pitch it through a performa itself, but being able to actually understand what this is going to look like is a key ingredient to being able to actually f- raise money.
0: Absolutely. I mean, most people are not able to envision things that are not actually there. You know, right. as architects we all have that ability to do that. But so if you can show someone that, it's hugely helpful.
1: And especially like if you're like a, for a traditional firm that does. Let's say residential work. That's a really good opportunity to, like, you know, look for a single-family house or maybe even a multifamily house in your community that looks like, uh, you know, what do they, they say? Like, try to find the worst house on the best block type of thing mm-hmm. uh, as a place to start. But like that exercise of building a performer, I'm sure one of the other benefits is ultimately that now you can speak to clients differently as well. I always think that there's like this idea, that like the more you understand what happens upstream and downstream, it's only to your benefit. Ultimately, like it helps you communicate more effectively mm-hmm. and it helps you to think about and dissipate the problems that someone, like a developer, if you're not structured already, is a lawyer. is. But it seems like almost like a no-brainer and almost like a, it's unfortunate that, that piece is somewhat missing from even education, right? For architects, because it's like, once you know that, it just makes you see products completely differently. Yeah. I
0: would say t- this is like kind of, a little bit on a tangent, but I would say too, that a a good way to even get started, like on a very, very small scale, almost like independently, would be to find somewhere that you could build a duplex and sell it or rent it out because then you're going through all the steps and then, you know, either you're renting it out and you still own it or you're selling each unit. But I think that is an interesting and an easy way to get started. And then, you know, you have something to go off of and you have experience and it just teaches you a lot. Cause then it's not just one single family home. It's a little bit more than just doing one home. Most people aren't going to just build a home and then like sell it. So I think doing a duplex, so you have a little bit more and get some more income or you can even live in part of it and rent out. House
1: house hack it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I just think that that could be an interesting way. It's just something that I've always, well, I still consider or I still would love to do at some point.
1: (laughs) What's great about this ultimately is that, we're talking about like just getting started, but you can go from there to where you are at right now, to the scale of products you're doing. I mean, it might seem sort of like a, a big leap, but essentially what you're suggesting ultimately is like, it's the repetition of like understanding the, mm-hmm. the going to the due diligence, under like going through that end to end, that's the important part that you can then, you know, just find bigger acquisition targets. Cause ultimately, the same amount of time that it takes you to develop that duplex would probably take you to develop something larger, right? That has a better financial model associated with it or more diversified. Yeah, I think that's a really good kind of takeaway for people. I also probably um, suspect that many people think about the the financial part of it, right? Like when we're talking about investors here for a project that at the scale that you're developing That's very different from like the scale of investors that you might find for like a smaller, I mean, a lot of it's like going to the bank. I mean, the bank is still part of what you're doing probably for developing these projects as well. But it might be interesting maybe for you to explain a little bit too about like what investors mean, like the kind of gamut of them, because... They actually, I mean, there's on the equity side, but there's a debt side too. If, if people aren't very much aware of what it means to fundraise, they might just suspect that like, oh, this is impossible. Like, how can I get like millions of dollars for a project? But in reality, it's like, well, there are people out there that are looking to invest and there are different types of people at different scales, right? And, yeah. and so I think the idea of being a developer also seems elusive because of the fact that they're like, oh, but I don't have that kind of money. But yeah. in reality, there are people that do all the kind of due diligence work and are able to find the investors through very different types of networks that exist. But so in my question that is, is ultimately like, you know, maybe you could unpack a little bit for us. Like what does that look like from when when you're fundraising for a project and how much of it is like, you don't have to go into details about how you, how you structure a deal, but um, I'm just curious, like what, what are the types of investors and how are those like personal relationships that are built over time?
0: I mean, it's, definitely a lot about personal relationships that are built over time, but you obviously everyone has to start somewhere. So I would say like getting started, it is unfortunately going to be kind of like you're a salesman knocking on people's doors. And it is just going to be a lot of word of mouth or asking people, you know, and you'd actually be surprised. Like, and the thing is too, like you don't have to have everyone investing a huge sum of money. It could be multiple different investors. And then they have, I don't want to get too complicated, but they have different return criteria that they want on a project. But, you know, like there could be people who are willing to put their money into things. I mean, think about how many people put their money into stocks. You have no idea what's going to happen with that. Real estate is pretty, I don't want to say certain, it's nothing is, but fairly safe place to put your money. It just takes longer to get that back. So people are actually more willing to do it than you think. Obviously you have to start small, but then as you once you do one successful project, then they're gonna to want to invest with you again. And then you also then have something to show other people, a new investor. Well, we just did this, or they will tell people. So it just has to grow and you have to start small unless you already, you know, have an amazing network of investors that are willing to put their pennies into your basket. But I would say even if you know a ton of investors up front. You can't just think that they're going to put their money into you. Like I said, you have to sell and you have to show them what you're going to do. And like I said, most people other than this world are not that imaginative. So you need to show them and you need to sell it to them. Everyone wants to invest their money. Everyone wants something to do something with it. <laughs>
2: Allie, I wanted to ask you if Alloy follows the like five phases of architecture, kind of talking about like early stages of trying to uh, work as a developer. But when you're working at the level that Alloy is, where it's more structured, there's more people on the team, is there phasing that's going on in what you might describe as like the development process versus the architecture process? Is there also phasing going on sort of in parallel that you're seeing on the construction management and contracting side?
0: So I would say obviously those five phases can never go away. So we have those and just adding a couple other phases onto the front end and then a couple onto the back end. Obviously earlier in the process is what I'll call it a feasibility phase where that involves the site selection, due diligence, underwriting, feasibility study. And our architects actually do come into play with that rather than just being like, okay, well, we're allowed to build a three-story building here. Our architects will actually do a little like some quick sketches on it and give us a little bit more, like give it a little more taste and what is around them and that, or what's around that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Different materials too. Like we definitely look into a little bit more of the design than I think most developers would at that stage. But you definitely have that, like I said, we'll call it the feasibility stage where you're doing all of that. And then obviously that also comes with program development that architects, I guess, wouldn't typically, not some, in some cases, the architect is brought on board very early in the process, but for the most part, you're not deciding what the program is. Someone is coming to you once that's already chosen and they say, we're building a commercial space and this is what we want, design it. So you're part of that program development too. And and like the very early conceptual designs. And then obviously then, you know, once that's all done and then you hit the typical five stages, then you're also thinking about, Even if we don't manage buildings, we're still thinking about that next stage of absorption and selling or, you know, leasing up. So that's something that as an architect, you're typically not involved in either. And even if like our designers aren't the ones doing it, then we're all in, you know, we have an open office, like we're all in one room, we're all talking about it. There's no secret. So they're just more aware of it. And it just, I think it just makes you think differently overall, just hearing the things, even if you're not the one directly involved with it, you know, all the different steps it takes and just makes you understand more like how many people are involved in one building. And I would say on a parallel note for construction, I guess, obviously I'm just looking at things differently. You know, we're, as they're picking materials um, and finishes, I'm then looking at what are the lead times? And well, that's not going to get here in time for construction. So I guess like, it's also thinking about the actual construction schedule alongside some of these design choices. And making sure that that's understood if there's any issues with
2: that. One thing that's really getting attached to these existing architecture processes is price. So like on program, there's like a sense of the value of program. And then maybe on, you know, the schedule, there's, you know, extra column of of the pricing, which is maybe instead of just like general estimation on the architecture side, you especially have true ownership of that pricing. Can you talk a little bit more about that, like the value of program that the developer sees and then the real cost impact of the schedule that you're directly managing?
0: The value of program, if we're talking like residential versus office space versus retail, there is dollar values you could put to that. Obviously, you just have to know the going rates in the market of your area. But there are other things that less tangible, I guess, like I, I was saying earlier with like amenity spaces, like there is still a value on there, even though there's not, you can't fully put a dollar value, there's still a value. So you're deciding that program to schedule also has a dollar value because <laughs> there are carrying costs and interest that you're paying and obviously has a huge impact. So if you see, there's a, a way that something is designed, that's just going to take three months longer because it's more complicated. You don't want to do that. Like you want to figure out a different way to do it. So, I mean, schedule comes into huge play. I don't know if that answered your question exactly, but.
2: Yeah. That's really helpful too, to just understand that the time value of money, how do you model that out? Like what is like your interface into time and and money cost? Like are you building out like a lot of different kind of Excel models that an architect would not see?
0: Oh Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like I said, if you just start practicing a pro forma, obviously there's some basic ones that won't reflect that in there, but otherwise you should be building in like our site that we have right now. We haven't started construction, but we've owned it for a few years. We're paying for that. So you need to build that into your, into your financial analysis. That's a huge part of it. So yeah, there's a whole aspect to that. And then once you get into the construction phase, there's things that you're like other permits that you have to maintain over a period of time that you have to factor into. There's a ton to it. I don't know how much you want me to get into it. But even like rental costs of like site fences, if you want security cameras, like there's a million different things. And it's, it's not just a one-time cost, it's over time. So if things start to get delayed, it's not just, oh, well, it's one month of delay that you're not selling yet. No, it's actually all those other... 10 things I just listed, that's another three months or whatever of an added expenditure that we just don't need to have.
2: Does it create for you like a whole lot more empathy on the client side, seeing these like the cost impact of time, imagining yourself in an architecture office sort of blind to that?
0: I see what you're saying. Yes. But the unfortunate thing is a lot of the times we'll come in with a misconception of the time that things do take. So when they come in with unrealistic expectations and I'm sorry, but no, I don't have, but yes, I I get what you're saying. So yes, I do. I have a much more heightened um, awareness of that now. And, you know, I remember just when I was just in construction previously and I was like, Oh, it's just going to take a few more weeks. Like just what's the big deal. I didn't understand why the climate. So I'm like, don't you want it done the right way? And even if it takes a few more weeks, and they're like, no, like we're, and now I do get that more, but It's they have to have realistic expectations, but that's also, I guess, you as a project team to set those expectations. So two way question there.
1: Yeah, I'm also just curious from that. It's like there just seems to be so much untapped value in bringing forward some of this information earlier into a process. Like I imagine, like if a client doesn't have really good clear expectations, which, in other words, if an architect doesn't also understand the implications of what they're doing. Right. That could be a recipe for disaster. Right. Because mm-hmm. essentially the architect doesn't really factor into their due diligence process when bringing on a client. Like, mm, are they aware of this? like, you know, w- without that kind of information that you're bringing to the table on the construction side, that architect just doesn't have that criteria in place to be able to make that call and say, actually, this is not a really good client for us because this is going to be a nightmare at the end of the day with this mismatched expectations. So it just kind of makes me think of there's just this this great opportunity somehow for architects to figure out systems to design, to include this into their own process, Mm -hmm. to learn more about, or either through education or through partners very early on when even trying to have a conversation with a potential client as to like, is this the right client to bring on?
0: That just kind of like triggered another thought in me. I was gonna say one of the most important things that I would do if I was still an architect is go to your project sites as much as possible. I know that like we all kind of like get in our, our silo of what we should be working on and it's inconvenient to drive or to take the train and go there, but go to your construction site and don't just go there and walk around by yourself and look at it. Talk to the construction manager and form a relationship with them. You will both learn from each other and benefit greatly from that. I cannot express that enough, but Coming from an architecture background, than being on a construction site daily was completely game changing. But I think it works both ways because the construction manager also needs to learn from the architect. I really think it's just working together. And the unfortunate thing is that you know most architects in say bigger companies, you're working on like five different projects at a time. You're not going to have the luxury of being aware of all these things that I'm mentioning and bring it to the table on every project. You don't have that time. But that's why there are people in different disciplines that. All have to come together to build a building. You don't have to be an expert in every area, but you know it's good to get comfortable with the people that you're working with, whatever whoever your project team is. So find ways to form that relationship. I know right now there might not be as much in person things, but try ways to form that relationship so you're comfortable with them. And you trust them because the thing is you, you can't know everything and you don't have time to do everything. Feeling comfortable even to just reach out to them and text them like it's a difference because they'll also. When you have something that you need from them, they'll respond to you if you if you forge that relationship.
2: I'm going to transition to some audience questions. So, one that came in is: uh, Has identifying contractors and trades that are able to execute alloys design intent has that been a limiting factor in the work?
0: Not limiting. No, I would say that from what I've seen, it's actually we find subcontractors and trades and construction managers who are excited about it that they feel it's refreshing they like really appreciate our, the design. So I don't feel that it's been limiting. It's, it's actually been more beneficial because we get people who almost care as much as we do. (laughs) I can't say they care as much because really it's like, you know, it's like your baby. Like we, we, it's our project it's actually, I've really enjoyed being on, like, we've had so many calls of, like, bidding out for different subcontractors, and, and like, how people want to be a part of the project? Because, like, and, like, they say specific reasons why. I'm, like, oh, you're not just, like, BSing me. Like, you actually do appreciate this. So, it's not limiting. I could see why that would be the thought, but I think it's the same for everyone. Like, you don't want to keep building the same things over and over. And like, if they have the capability and the capacity to do something different, then they're excited about it. Why not change things up a little bit? So, no, I don't think it's an issue. It's actually you find people who get excited about the same things that you do.
2: We had a question that came in. It's sort of like uh, similar to a question you answered about how to get started in in development as an architect. How might you think about that for how to get started in a GC role? Is there a way to sort of test that or
0: I wish that there was, but unfortunately, there's not. But it's not a bad thing. I think if you're if you're interested in it, you should listen. They GCs always need people. You know what I mean? Like an architecture firm might be a little bit more lean, but GCs are not as much, so they're always going to need people. You can maybe find something. I would say just jump into it, and that's the best way. Like. That is something that you really just can't learn um, and you learn from people around you. The biggest thing I would say, though, is if say you do go into that role, a hard thing for a lot of people is communicating with the subcontractors directly on site. I think is a huge thing and they learn you so much more than you could even imagine just by asking them questions. Don't be afraid to look like you don't know something. That, that's always what I have told new people. I'm like, they're the expert in their area. You're not like, I know enough about each trade, but I'm not an expert in every trade, but I know enough to at least know I have to ask them questions. And I've learned more and more by doing that. They respect you and are more and more willing to help you and work with you then too. So I would say talking to all the subcontractors if you want to do it. Or even, you know, maybe if you're nervous or you don't necessarily want to make that change, then like I said, stay in your architecture role, but go to your project sites and you can still talk to the subs and to the CM. And you can just be, if you're there a lot, you'll gain some of that. You won't gain as much of the, I don't want to say stresses, but it's a different sense of urgency when you're the construction manager, the GC, which is a blessing and a curse. I don't know how you want to look at it, but you won't gain that full aspect of it, but you will gain a lot still going as an architect, not as a GC. But I think it'd be great. I think it should actually be like a new part of like getting your architecture licenses. Like you have to work for a GC for a full year. And that's one of the license, one of the tests you have to take or something. But because I think that'd be great. I also think the same thing for GCs though. They should go, they should go have to work for an architecture firm for a year too.
2: Allie, how about say a firm owner has a, between eight to 30 people? Should they consider bringing on someone with your background, like a director of construction or construction manager that either isn't exactly the GC, but actually could be the GC?
0: I think that it depends on how many projects that firm has going on at any given time. But I think that there's benefits to it regardless. Like it can be kind of a liaison between the two. So it could help free up some of the tasks that the architects have to do that aren't Really, it's like not necessarily There's so many things that we're always like, "Why am I the one doing this?" And so it definitely could free up some of those tasks and have. And it could be, you know, the person who is like intimately familiar with the design and is on site more frequently. So I think there's so there's a ton of ways that that can be integrated in, and I think it's helpful. There could also just be sessions that that the team has for like constructability review, and just helps the designers look at things in a different way. Like there's so many different ways that that could be useful. So. I wouldn't say, yeah. I mean, I I think it could be a really interesting way to bring something different to your company without making a huge change,
1: and and maybe give you an edge too. I I just think about like how that could impact like client conversations as well. Mm -hmm. You're bringing that person into the room as well as a stakeholder, you know, as part of the conversation and the pitch to say like, hey, we really understand what you're looking for, and we can provide we can consult you too on that and be, be sure that what we're, the mm-hmm. product we're providing or delivering is ultimately, you know, it has all these, th- all the costs associated with it. Right. We understand that more effectively.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. It's another thing too. that I didn't mention, but you know, certain designs is saying, well, how can we provide some savings while still designing what we want here and different things like that. So, yeah, yeah. I think there's a ton of ways that that could be, I think that'd be really interesting actually.
1: I mean, I just love the, how you described to this idea of like going on the detailed drawing and like, like marking out who owns what when it actually comes to putting it together. Yeah. And what might seem like a very unified detail is actually like this kind of like unbeknownst to the architect, just so many mm-hmm. different people actually, and not even, it's like the diagram, maybe because I'm reverting back to my old days of, of being, of studying architecture, but the diagram that you could draw for that could be pretty interesting. Just like, oh, there's time as an equation. Cause like this trade actually wouldn't even pop out that part or like whatever. Right. It's just, it's uh, the, the complexity there I think would be incredibly valuable to decipher yeah. and to your point, educate to it. And that's that alone seems worth the position.
0: Yeah. I think helping with trade coordination and sequencing is, would be really interesting for the architects to kind of get a, more of a feel
2: for. I've been on site, like going on site and sort of having the foresight to know maybe the contractor or the trades don't see where a built condition they've just created is going to create a consequence later.
0: I don't know if I'm a misunderstanding, but I would say, like, I haven't come up with a situation where the trade isn't already aware if there's going to be a future consequence they will, <laughs> hopefully they will address it before they actually then complete part of it. Or it might be in the middle, unfortunately, they'll start to do something and they'll be like, uh, that's not going to work that way. Or especially if you're working in an existing building, there's going to be millions of things like that, but it's usually either before or in the middle of something. So, but then obviously you have to, we just have to make changes on the
1: fly. I think we're, we're almost at the top of the hour. So I just want to ask one final question that I like to ask all our guests. And that is, what is the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? It's very different from types of questions we've been asking, but we like to also mm-hmm. kind of zoom out and just uh, talk about being people for a minute.
0: So I'm going to have to be really nerdy right now. So the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm like, well, my mom is the nicest person I know. So it has to be something she's done for me. Right. But then I'm like, how do you ever even remember a specific thing your mom has done for you? Like they do everything. But I will say, and it might not be, I don't know if you would say it's the nicest or sweetest thing, but every Mother's Day, she gives my sister and I a gift and it could be something small or it could just be a card one year. But she gives us a little gift every Mother's Day because she says, "I want to be a mother without you," and I think that is just the sweetest thing. So <laughs> sweet, so sweet. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Uh,
1: and very timely too, because Mother's Day is coming. I know. Up, so that's a I good reminder it. for folks. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you so much. Well, I, but before we all leave, uh, I just want to uh, take a moment to give a. A little blurb about monograph the company that that uh, is is hosting this uh, webinar and that chris and i work at so at monograph we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium-sized firms monograph is designed for architects by architects firm owners operation leaders office admins project managers um, all use monograph to track the fee health of a a project, and staffing across projects as well. So if you're very interested in starting with Monograph and checking us out, feel free to go over to monograph.io, or you can also sign up for a live demo, which we have. If you go to Monograph, you'll be able to see it there, a button at the very top right. You can sign up for a live demo that we host every Friday. So you can watch uh, Robert, our CEO, and myself kind of talk to you about the benefits of of Monograph and give you a walkthrough. So feel free to uh, join. Ali, thank you so much for uh, this kind of walk, this really amazing walkthrough. Uh, I I took away so much inspiration from from this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys,
0: this was very fun.
2: Thank you, Ali, really appreciate it. Cheers, everyone. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.